Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. We're here tonight to celebrate a very special event in the course of Jesus' earthly ministry. That event, of course, was the last Passover supper he shared with his disciples before his betrayal, death, burial, and resurrection. Today is called Maundy Thursday, which means Commandment Thursday, so we've often focused in this service on the past on the new commandment that Jesus gave to his disciples to love one another. But of course, there's a lot that's going on during the Last Supper, and so tonight, I wanted to focus on a different aspect of the Supper, and I'm going to focus our attention on Judas and on his betrayal of Jesus. Now, Judas' crime is so terrible and wicked that it is painful to look at carefully, but the Last Supper is, of course, where our practice of communion comes from, and in 1 Corinthians, we're commanded to examine ourselves as we come to this table. And so the story of Judas is a warning and a help for us to do that, and so we must look at it carefully. If we want to avoid Judas's error, we must look, at, look carefully at the difference between true repentance and false repentance. Now our passage uh, today, tonight comes from John 13. Uh, we've already read it, so I'm going I'm to go ahead. Uh, I think it's up on the screen there, John 13, 21. Now... As we read the Bible, it's very easy to think, um, as we read particularly this passage, oh, I'm sorry, I'm going to go ahead and read it. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know which one, which one he was speaking, of which one he was speaking. Now, we think of the disciples, uh, that the disciples were pretty dumb for not knowing this, and I'll get into that in a minute. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss of, to know of which one he was speaking. There, there was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And the morsel, Satan, uh, after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to them, buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. Okay, so we read this passage, and we think, boy, the disciples are dumb, right? How could they, not, how could they possibly not know what Judas was about to do? Jesus just told them, right? But of course, the disciples don't have the benefit like we do of reading to the end of the story and know, knowing what comes next, right? They couldn't tell the future. 
And so we must realize that for the disciples to be so unresponsive to this bit of news meant that, they, that what Judas was about to do never came into their minds. It never occurred to them. They didn't understand the import of Jesus' words and they weren't concerned about them. They weren't concerned about Judas. So, but what do we know about Judas? We know that he was the treasurer for their little group. We know that he was a thief. Uh, as we read earlier in the, this evening, uh, we know that shortly before this Passover meal, a woman named Mary gave the precious gift of uh, an anointing. She anointed Jesus' head with costly perfume. Judas objects to this uh, demonstration of love on the part of Mary, and he says, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to, the, to poor people? And scripture fills in for us, it says, now he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief, and as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put in it. So not only was Judas a thief, he was also a hypocrite. How many terrible sins are committed by so-called high-minded, principled people who are just trying to do the right thing? If you don't know it already, there's a very useful word to learn, and that is the word sanctimonious, okay? Judas was being sanctimonious. Sanctimonious means that you put on a show of moral superiority to other people. This is uh, what we do all the time in our culture. It's kind of the, the currency of our culture almost. Um, we make a show of being morally superior to other people whenever we try to get a leg up on them. Now, do people who are actually morally superior act morally superior to other people? Are people who are actually morally superior sanctimonious? The answer is no, right? It's very similar to what Tim says about authority. If a man has to jam his authority down his wife's throat and his family's throat, you know, it's a joke, right? It's not, he doesn't have, he's not carrying authority the way he should. And so it's in the same way, if someone has to uh, jam his moral superiority down your throat, it probably means that he's not actually morally superior. And this is indeed the case with Judas. He was being sanctimonious because he was a hypocrite. He didn't care about the poor. So we know that Judas was a thief and a hypocrite, and we also learn, based on the response of the other disciples to Jesus' comment at the Last Supper, that they did not suspect anything. In fact, in Matthew's account of the Last Supper, uh, the disciples all responded, when Jesus said that one of you will betray me, all the disciples said, is it me, Lord? They were all upset and concerned. Is it me? They, they suspected themselves before they suspected Judas. Now, it's very easy to denounce, since we know the end of the story, since we know where Judas is headed, it's very easy to denounce Judas as a monster. And it's a very lazy thing for us to do. It's, it's possible that we can make him into some kind of alien creature from a horror movie, you know? He was uh, just born this way. He's just a monster, and he's totally different than we are. But if we, if we do that, we'll miss the entire benefit of this story for ourselves, Again, the reaction of the disciples demonstrates that Judas was not always a traitor. He was a friend. He was a brother in arms. He was part of the band of brothers, and they trusted him. So how did he become a traitor? 
Judas was a thief and he loved money. Now, it's very possible to be very bad at managing money and to love it, but I tell you that the people who are good at managing money always run the risk of loving money too much. In my, in my house, right, I actually do most of the budget managing. Normally in a couple, uh, one or the other does most of the budget work. And so this is a temptation that I think about as I think, consider with my wife how to divvy up our, our, our budget. Doug, uh, my brother-in-law, is a financial planner, and I've listened to him describe financial planners to me, and it's very clear to me that, that the majority of them love money. Doug watches himself carefully in this regard because he knows that it's a temptation for him. And so Judas was the money manager, and we know that he loved money. Do you think that Judas started out with the money bag, stealing from the money bag when he started the job? No, right? We don't, very likely he did not start out that way. He was probably simply the one who was good at managing money, was willing to do that particular job, and so the disciples let him do that job. And so I, 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 I want to impress this point on you because I want you to recognize in yourself how easy it is for you to love money and to love the things of this world. These kinds of sins start out very small, Perhaps Judas started borrowing from the fund a few times, uh, promising to himself that he'd pay it back, and then maybe a few times he forgot. Then maybe he gave up even the pretense of paying it back and stole a little bit, and then later more and more. Gradually, he became hardened in his sin. And so right before the Last Supper, Judas pretends to care about the poor and objects to Mary's lavish display of love to Jesus. And Jesus, in turn, rebukes Judas in public. He says, you'll always have the poor with you, Judas. Those who desire to do good to the poor will never lack an opportunity. Now, Jesus doesn't make Judas's theft known, per se, but it is certainly a rebuke. It is an opportunity, and rebukes like this are an opportunity for Judas to come clean. How many times was Peter, for instance, rebuked in the New Testament? Many times. Judas could have been pricked in conscience by this event and could have confessed his sin to Jesus and the other men, but instead, Jesus' rebuke stung. It left him bitter and angry. This final week of Jesus' life gave Judas more opportunities like that rebukes that could have led to repentance, but instead led to bitterness and anger. Last Sunday, for instance, we celebrated Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Many of the people wanted him to be an earthly king, and it would not surprise me at all if Judas was one of the number who were expecting him to be a king. Clearly, Judas loved the things of this world and would have loved nothing better, I'm sure, than to throw off the, the rule of the Romans and to have an earthly king. And so you can imagine the bitter anger and frustration of Judas when Jesus begins to speak about his own death. This is not the exultant end that Judas was hoping for. It was probably a terrible, crushing disappointment for Judas. And then during the supper, 
Jesus takes a bit of bread, dips it in the wine, and literally places the bite into Judas' mouth, Judas's mouth. <laughs> Talk about an opportunity to repent, right? He calls Judas out right then. What do you think Jesus' eyes looked like at that moment, looking at Judas, knowing what he was going to do? Did that act on Jesus' part soften Judas? No. We know, of course, since we've read to the end, that it only hardened him all the more. Judas went out into the night and raged at Jesus for calling him out. He left hating Jesus all the more for dashing his hopes and dreams. And so what did Judas do? He goes to the priests and asks them to make him an offer. Had the priests ever considered buying off one of Jesus' disciples? It's possible, but that's not recorded for us in Scripture, so we don't really know. But it doesn't appear that there was an offer on the table. So Judas goes to them and says, make me an offer. How much are you going to give me? They give him 30 pieces of silver, which in the Old Testament is the price of a slave. He takes the money and betrays Jesus to them in the middle of the night with a kiss. Judas hated Jesus and was terribly angry with him in the moment when he betrayed him. But I don't think Judas had any idea. I don't think he had, he had thought through the ch- what could possibly happen, what the chain of events would unfold by his actions, as a result of his actions. When Judas saw that Jesus had been condemned to death, he felt remorse and actually returned the money he had taken from the priests. He declared, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. He hated Jesus, but he had enough of a conscience that he was able to declare what he knew to be true. Jesus was an innocent man. The priests won't lift a finger for Judas' guilty conscience, and so he goes and kills himself. He commits suicide. What a horrible end. It makes your stomach churn to think about it. Now, there's another character in this story that can teach us about the nature of true repentance, the Apostle Peter. We all love Peter, right? Isn't he wonderful? We love him. We love Peter because his sins are so very big. He doesn't mess around with little sins and half sins and sneaky sins, he dives in headlong. And in these last few hours of Jesus' earthly life, Peter also betrays Jesus. Peter had been the one who had told Jesus that he would never desert him, no matter what. And then when Jesus was standing trial and a young girl noted that he had been with Jesus, Peter swore up and down that he didn't know anything about Jesus. The Bible records that the rooster crowed right at that moment and that Jesus looked then, right then directly in Peter's eyes and Peter realized what he had done. He had betrayed his master and he went out and wept bitterly. Now unlike Judas, Peter doesn't kill himself. In fact, the Bible tells us the wonderful story where after Jesus had been raised from the dead, he's standing on the beach <coughs> and he's calling out to the disciples who are working in a boat fishing. And Peter recognizes who it is. And he puts on his coat and jumps in the water, right? And he gets to the beach. He's desperate to see Jesus. And Jesus asks him those, those words three times, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter answers, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. 
It's such a sweet, sweet ending. But why the difference between Peter and Judas? After all, they both had been with Jesus. They had both seen his miracles. They saw how he loved people. They had both sat under the same teaching for years. They had seen Jesus' integrity and truthfulness. And in the end, they both testified that Jesus was an innocent, righteous man. Both of them recognized their own sin and felt shame for it. And yet one was driven to suicide and the other to love. What gives? Why the difference? I want to point out three things. First, pride. Jesus gave many opportunities. Jesus gave Judas many opportunities to repent and to bring his sin out into the open. And God does this with us all the time. Right? Maybe a look from your wife or your children, a comment from your children. That's happened to me many times before. They've pricked my conscience by what they've said very innocently. Maybe a comment from your coworker or classmate. Maybe a passage of scripture that you read or something you hear in a sermon pricks your conscience. In Peter's case, it was nature. The rooster crowed and brought his sin to his mind. And in fact, if we have the eyes to see it, our world is filled with messengers reminding us of this very simple truth. It is appointed for man once to die and then the judgment. But because of our pride, we don't want to recognize that fact. We resent it when we're reminded of our own mortality and frailty and sinfulness. We resent it because it's humiliating. We're convinced that we're better than that. We're convinced that we're better than those people over there. And so we cringe when these reminders come our way. Instead of being grateful, and we punch and we kick. Judas should have been grateful for these opportunities to repent but instead, they, they caused him to hate Jesus even more. They were like water being poured on the root of bitterness, causing it to grow up and to flower into full bloom. <clears throat> so that's the first problem with Judas is his pride. Second, despair. Judas couldn't sneak around as a hypocrite among the disciples anymore. Everyone now knew what he really was, and the only restoration possible would require facing those he had betrayed and asking them for forgiveness. Judas didn't believe it was possible. G.K. Chesterton has a quote about suicide that I found very helpful. He says, the man who kills a man kills a man. The man who kills himself kills all men. As far as he is concerned, he wipes out the world. In the bitterness of his own soul, Judas would rather destroy the whole world than believe that he could be forgiven and restored. Suicide is the ultimate rejection of God and his mercy. Now, what I've just said about suicide would make many people in our country very angry today. Perhaps it's made you angry. We don't believe that a man who commits suicide is morally culpable for his crime. So for me to say that suicide is a wicked rejection of God's mercy and goodness makes me a monster, but that's exactly what it is. Just an hour before coming to this service, I saw an article in The Guardian magazine online criticizing a recent law passed in North Carolina. The law says that you must use a bathroom for, you must use the bathroom for your biological sex and not for your gender identity. (laughs) 
right? In other words, a man who decides he's a woman must still use the men's room and not the women's room. The article in The Guardian claims that this law in North Carolina is dangerous because recent research shows that, quote, when young people are denied access to a restroom that aligns with their gender gender identity, their rates of suicide go up. So if we don't let them use the bathroom of their choice and they kill themselves, we're the guilty ones. Was Jesus guilty of Judas' death? Did Jesus drive Judas to despair? No. God gives us many, many opportunities to repent and believe. God delights in the repentance of sinners. Judas' guilt was his own. Now one more thing about the despair of Judas. In the last few years, the pastors and elders of our church have carefully studied the question of paedo-communion, that is, the practice of giving communion to very to very young children or infants. Joseph Bailey is in the middle of a series about it on the Bailey blog that I do commend to you. Those who are opposed to pedo communion, opposed to infant communion, say that the individual must be able to examine himself before coming to the table and that a very small child like an infant, <clears throat> a two-year-old, is not able to do that. Those in favor of infant communion or toddler communion or whatever say that we're being overly strict. In the words of one commenter on the blog, quote, examine yourself before you get to the table, make amends before you come to the table, and then partake of the feast of the kingdom with thanksgiving and great joy. This is no time for prolonged introspection, unquote. But careful introspection when we come to the table to communion And joy, careful introspection and joy are not opposed to each other. Just like Judas, Peter recognized his terrible sin and wickedness. He knew that he had sinned terribly, but he didn't give in to despair. In fact, we know that Christ rebuked Peter many times in the course of his earthly ministry in the strongest way possible, right? Get behind me, Satan. is what he said to Peter once, and still Peter believed that the mercy and grace of God was for him. In fact, some of you, I'm sure, struggle to believe that you are one of Christ's children. You struggle to believe that you have a place at this table. How can I be sure that if I'm one of the elect... That very question is often fueled by the very pride and despair that I'm talking about. The answer is the very opposite of pride and despair. It it is humility and hope. Judas demonstrated pride and despair, whereas Peter demonstrated humility and hope. You know that you're welcome to this table if you have the humility to be exposed once again for 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 what you really are. And you know that you're welcome to this table if you have the hope that it's really for you. Peter, as I said, demonstrated both this humility and hope many times by by sinning in terrible ways and yet flinging himself on Christ and returning to Jesus. And so the great chasm finally between these two men, Peter and Judas, is that at the end of the day, Peter loved Jesus, and Judas hated him. Remember when in John 6, Jesus told his disciples that they would have to eat his flesh and drink his blood? Many of his disciples at the time 
abandoned him, left him at that point. And, and Jesus turns to his disciples and says, says to them, are you going to leave me too? And Peter responds, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. And so my question to you tonight, <clears throat> my, as I wrap up, is do you love Jesus? I'm not asking if you love Christian theology or if you love Tim Bailey or Clearnote Church or John Piper. I'm asking, do you personally love Jesus Christ? The question is a very personal, intimate one. I've been reading the Psalms in my personal devotions recently, and I've been struck at how personal they are. The psalmist, usually David, is constantly talking about his personal conflicts with his enemies. The title of this sermon is from Jesus' words to his disciples in John 13, but Jesus is simply quoting Psalm 41, 9 to 11. Jesus says in, in, um, in John uh, 13, I know the ones who I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. And so then in, in Psalm 41, it says, beginning with verse 9, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you are pleased with me because my enemy does not shout in triumph over me. The psalmist prays that God would take his side and fight against his enemies. Jesus in the Gospels is the same way. He constantly demands devotion to himself personally. And so again, my question to you this evening is, do you love Jesus? Do you delight to honor him and give him glory in your life? Do you delight to read his word and to pray and to speak with him? Do you delight in this meal or does this meal make you cringe? Does, does, or on the other hand, does G- Jesus drive you crazy? Does his demands on your life increase your bitterness and anger and self-pity? Remember, those who hate Jesus the most are those who have tasted something of his goodness and mercy. Judas was a disciple of the most holy God, God in the flesh for three years, and yet his soul was consumed by bitterness and hatred. The story of Judas is not for those outside the church. Christ's betrayer had to be one of his disciples, and Judas' sin was so terrible precisely because of how close he had been to Jesus. And so, brothers and sisters, we have an opportunity tonight to draw close to Jesus. Don't allow Christ's demands on you to lead you to bitterness, to cause you to turn to bitterness and anger. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your supper and for your word. We thank you because it is a sweet balm to us who are indeed awful sinners and who confess that we must fling ourselves on your mercy entirely for our hope. And Father, we come tonight with hope and we pray that you would fill us with hope where we are weak and, and faltering as we come, Father. Strengthen, I pray, those especially who are weak and who are tempted to despair. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.